This is KAOS. You and I are listening to Chaos in Australia. Let's go to the telephones now and take a request. Yes, Billy. You hear radio waves in your head. Ah, is there a request that you have tonight for chaos? Radio waves. The atmosphere is thin and cold. The yellow sun is getting old. The ozone overflows with radio waves. Astrophysics brings the news. The race and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves. Radio waves. Radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, radio Hello, my name's Brendan O'Brien and welcome to the Astrophys podcast. The title of today's podcast is Young Tidal Dwarf Galaxies with Dr. Karen Lee Waddell from CSIRO. Each session will have co-presenters, we'll have a special guest from both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy, we'll have a news roundup, we'll have a history and theory session from Nadezhda and we'll talk to her very soon. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. So let's begin by crossing straight over to Tver in Russia and speaking with Professor Nadezhda Shcherbakov. Hello, Nadezhda. Hello, Brendan. Dobrutra. Good day. Today I'm going to tell you about the discovery of radio waves coming from Jupiter. And to give you a taste of what it sounds like, listen to this. That just sounds like static on a badly tuned AM radio, Nadezhda. Very true, Brendan, but it tells us a lot more about Jupiter than we ever knew before at the time and led on to even greater discoveries. So we're following a very familiar theme where we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Talk to you later. Thank you, Nadezhda. I'll look forward to it. But first, we go to our first guest today, and that's Dr. Karen Lee Waddell from the CSIRO. Good morning, and welcome to Karen Lee Waddell. Good morning. Thank you very much. Karen, could you tell us about your background and how you became interested in science, first of all, and then how you became involved in astrophysics? Well, it actually started when I was quite young. Uh, My interest in science started one night 
when I was driving home with my sister. I was about nine years old, and well, for most of my life, I lived in the city. And so we were driving home from a more rural area, and she opened the sunroof in her car. And when I looked up, I saw so many stars that it almost took my, my breath away. Wonderful. And then she pointed out a few of the constellations, and from that moment, I was pretty much hooked. I read everything I could about space and science, and soon I had my first telescope. And from there, I just took it as a hobby, and it turned into my academic and research career. There's no substitute for doing what you love, Karen. Yes. Now, could you tell us about how you got involved in astrophysics? When I was starting my undergraduate program, I went into sciences, and I knew that I liked physics. And so I did physics, and I chose a specialization in astrophysics. And I just started taking courses on it, and I really liked it. I've, I've always liked looking up and wondering what's out there. So it was just one of those things. It's like, hey, I can not only look what's out there, but actually start researching and doing some science and math and understanding what the universe is. Wonderful. Now, tell us about your original PhD thesis. So my PhD thesis, I looked at three interacting galaxy groups. So galaxies interact in almost like a dance. So they'll dance together for a few uh, million years, and eventually they'll actually merge to form larger galaxies. And so that's how galaxies kind of form and get their material and get bigger. So what I actually studied was that interaction phase or that dancing phase where they come together and they start pulling out gaseous streams of material and sometimes stars. And it's these gaseous streams of materials and stars that actually allow us to study this process, this dynamic that's actually going on between these systems, because we still don't fully understand how galaxies form and evolve. And by studying this one little step in the dance, we're starting to get a better picture on how galaxies are drawn together by gravity and then eventually merge to form larger galaxies. In your early career, you discovered a galaxy that no one else had seen before. Yes, yeah, so I uh, found tidal dwarf galaxies. So these are, I'm not sure how rare they are, but they're more or less newly discovered objects. There's probably only a handful of these that are fully verified and confirmed. And so what these tidal dwarf galaxies are, they're almost like baby galaxies that are produced during this interaction during this dancing phase. So when material is pulled out from the parent galaxies, if enough material is pulled out, it can actually become self-gravitating and detach and become its own galaxy. And so this new baby galaxy or tidal dwarf galaxy, as they're actually called, is what I look for. And I found a couple of these interesting types of newly formed galaxies. Now, is that part of your current research at CSIRO? What are you currently working on? Yes, yeah, so my current research, so I'm here as part of, to work with the Wallaby Survey, and so the Wallaby Survey is looking at H1, so neutral hydrogen gas, in the universe, and it's this neutral hydrogen gas, or H1, that allows us to trace these interactions. So when I mentioned earlier that the galaxies come together and start interacting with each other, they pull out streams of gaseous material. This gaseous material, most of it is hydrogen gas. So by using radio telescopes like the new ASCAP telescope, we can actually look at this H1 and see what it's doing. We can measure its properties, we can figure out its dynamics, and then therefore understand what these galaxies are actually doing. Is there a particular frequency you use? Yeah, so the frequency that corresponds to H1 is 1.4 gigahertz. And so that corresponds to the 21 centimeter line. 
Can you tell us a little bit more, please, Karen, about the different technologies you use in your research? So I've used telescopes all around the world. I've used single-dish telescopes, single-dish radio telescopes, which pretty much have a large field of view and very good sensitivity. So we can actually detect these groups that are undergoing this interaction event because they might have an increase of H1 gas. And then I also use interferometers like the GMRT in India there, and interferometers can actually zoom in. They actually have very high resolution. But a lot of times with these high-resolution telescopes, yes, you can zoom in and see the details of these small, newly formed galaxies. But then we also filter out a lot of this gas because that's the limitation. You kind of trade off sensitivity for resolution. Whereas now, with the new ASCAP telescope, they have these phase array feeds or radio cameras that can actually have high sensitivity and high resolution. So we get best of both worlds. I've also used optical telescopes such as the CFH. Uh, Canada-France-Hawaii telescope in Hawaii to look at the stellar component of these gaseous features that I'm looking at. And right now I have time on the Gemini telescope to get some optical spectroscopy. So hopefully I'll be able to check the metallicity of the Tylodorf galaxies that I've located. Okay, thank you. Now for our listeners that are just beginning the journey to understand radio astronomy and optical astronomy, metallicity means something different to astronomers, doesn't it? Yes, usually we uh, classify gases as hydrogen and sometimes helium, and then everything else is metal to us, like uh, just because of how uh, how these uh, molecules and atoms are, are formed. Yeah, so, that, that's yeah so it's a little different. And so we look at ratios of how much, for example, oxygen compared to hydrogen there is. So we measure metallicity slightly differently. And, and the reason why we would want to know metallicity is because... All, all these uh, atoms that are, all these chemical abundances and atoms that are beyond helium are formed inside stars, right? So older stars or more massive stars can produce other more metal-rich atoms. And so by determining the metallicity of our tidal dwarf galaxies, we can actually predict if they were from, or we can actually, sorry, extrapolate back to see if they came from their parents because these small galaxies shouldn't have the stars or as many stars to produce as many elements that are beyond hydrogen and helium. Fantastic. So we can actually, it's almost looking at the DNA of these tidal dwarf galaxies to see if they reflect what their parents are made out of. Wonderful. It reminds me of that famous quote from Carl Sagan, we're all made of star stuff. Yes, exactly. Okay, can you tell us now about some of the collaborations you do both within and beyond CSIRO? So the major collaboration that I'm working with right now is the Wallaby Survey. So that involves hundreds of scientists across the globe, and pretty much everyone has a different part. So this neutral hydrogen survey will not only look at these tidal streams, but it'll also look at galaxy formation, I'll look at evolution and star formation in galaxies, I'll look at the H1 mass function, um, I'll look at kinematics, I'll look at all these other different parameters to understand the universe. So we have different groups that are working on different parts of this project together. And so once we get the data from the survey, we'll be able to analyze it in so many different ways and then come up with some, hopefully some, a better understanding of our universe. Okay, so why are astrophysicists so interested in galaxy formation? 
Well, some of it is just discovery and understanding. Like, where are we going to, where would you become from? Where are we going to go? And another thing is, our galaxy right now is in an interaction event with our near, our nearest main massive neighbor, Andromeda, or M31. So eventually, like a long time from now, the Milky Way and M31 will merge together to form a large galaxy as well. So we're kind of trying to understand how the universe works, but eventually we would like to know what's going to happen to our galaxy, even though we won't be around by the time that actually happens. <laughs> no, we're a long way away from Andromeda at the moment, but that interaction has already partially started. We're in the local group, and so the local group pretty much is a, a grouping of galaxies that are nearby each other. And so according to modern cosmology, galaxies form in the cosmic web, and there's nodes where there might be more galaxies than other places. So there's like like a web where there's sometimes there's a bit more material. And so we're in a medium-density environment so not like a cluster, so that, that'd be high density. And we're not in a low-density environment, like more like in the filaments. But we're in this group. And so all the objects in this group, including the, the other dwarf galaxies, for example, the Magellanic clouds and whatnot, will eventually merge together and form one large old galaxy. Okay, and apart from being an active researcher in some very important questions with galaxy formation and cosmology, can you tell us a bit about some of the outreach work? I noticed that you're doing a lot of work online, in social media, helping to bring about a better understanding of our universe. You also do some work in schools. Can you tell us about your outreach, please, Karen? Yes, well, I believe strongly that everyone should like science and be able to like science. So I want to bring science, and especially space science, to the general public. That's why I do love doing outreach activities and public education nights. So I've done different lectures and talks at observatories, as you alluded to, and just different volunteering for different science fairs and hands-on science events. But one of the major things that I'm involved in right now is the science and mathematicians in schools program and so uh, that's run by CSIRO and pretty much uh, scientists or mathematicians can volunteer to go into a school and actually help help the teachers and the students understand certain aspects about science or math and so right, right now I'm volunteering with Mother Teresa Primary School in Westmead and I work with mostly the year three and four students so around nine years old because that's kind of when I was inspired to astronomy but I work with those students and we've done different lessons everything from my research and in interacting galaxies they've looked at the sun using the solar telescopes I've even taught lessons on Rayleigh scattering and erosion and weathering just because they needed help with their science at the end of the semester, I'm going to be helping the year five, so they're around 10 years old, and they'll be doing different phases of matter, so solid, liquid, gas, and plasma. So I'm just one of the helpers making sure the teachers feel comfortable teaching their students about science, because once they appreciate the students appreciate science, I believe that eventually like, I'm inspiring the next generation of scientists. I'm very confident you are inspiring them and there's nothing like having women role models as well because we certainly need more women in science. Oh, definitely. Okay, what I'd like to finish off now with, Karen, is to give you an opportunity to tell us what you're thinking about the world of science. Okay, sure. So I'm actually fairly new in my research career. I finished my PhD 
pretty much about a year ago. And so I'm still new and understanding the politics and all that stuff behind research, but I'm actually finding it, it's not that bad compared to what people might have been saying or alluding to or what even what the media is showing. Like, I found that I'm not really discriminated against being a female, visual minority in sciences. I find it's actually quite accommodating. And I think it's those strides forward that I'm witnessing right now that's making me just seem like, oh, this is great. For example, at the most recent conferences that I went to, uh, all the conferences provided free childcare. And the funny thing is, everyone's like, oh, that's going to get more women into science. But when you actually saw who picked up the children from the childcare, it was all the males who were picking up their children. So it's actually enabling families to continue. But I am kind of new. And right now, I think we're on the cusp of doing everything the way it's supposed to be, the right way. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Karen. It's been wonderful talking to you. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, Karen. Bye now. Bye. That was Dr. Karen Lee Waddell, and in another 12 months, hopefully we'll talk with her again to find out what new things are happening with tidal dwarf galaxies. And now we cross back to Tver in Russia to hear Dr. Nadezhda Sherbakov tell us all about Franklin and Burke and their discovery of radio waves coming from Jupiter. Welcome, Nadezhda. Thank you, Brendan. So, several weeks ago, we started with Maxwell's equations, then Faraday's and Hertz's experiments, then Marconi's development of radio transmitters, antennas, and receivers, then the great Karl Jansky's discovery of radio waves coming from the center of the galaxy, and thank you to the listener who wrote in to tell me I have made a mistake. And you are right, Valeri. I meant to say that Jansky found radio waves emanating from Sagittarius in the direction of the center of our Milky Way galaxy. Not the center of the universe, as I said, although technically there is no center of the universe because we say the universe is said to be homogeneous and isotropic when viewed enough on a large enough scale. What that means is that the universe looks the same whoever and wherever you are. So if we want to split rabbits, then every point is the center of the universe. But it will be quite some time till we have an episode on the cosmological principle, but that is still something to look forward to, Brendan. Yes, Nadezhda. Keep going. So, after Jansky, we had Grote Reba map the whole radio sky and the Milky Way. Then last week we worked up to the 1940s and 1950s where Ruby Payne Scott from your CSIRO and others discovered the radio waves coming from our sun. So now the world had the growing science of radio astronomy and radio astronomers discovered a few more sources of radio waves from beyond the Earth. One of them was the Crab Nebula in the constellation of Taurus. Today, we show that sometimes by looking far away, we can find things closer to home. I learned a new English word, Brendan. Serendipity. Today, we focus on Dr. Kenneth 
Franklin and Dr. Bernard Burke. Kenneth Franklin was born in 1923 and died in 2007 and worked at the Carnegie Institute of Washington, which was also home for the constant Edward Hubble and Vera Rubin of dark matter fame. Anyway, Franklin was later the chief scientist at the Hayden Planetarium up until 1984 and was credited with discovering the radio waves coming from Jupiter along with another researcher, the first detection of signals from another planet. He was often a local and national media figure in the USA, including during Apollo 11, the first manned mission to the moon, when Franklin was an astronomy expert on television. His colleague, Dr. Burke, who also worked at the Carnegie Institute with him, and together they made a Mills Cross antenna, and we're going to devote a whole episode to antenna design, but their Mills Cross antenna was what they used to pick up this static coming from Jupiter. It turns out they were going to use a Crab Nebula to test how their antenna array was working. The test seemed to go very well, and every few weeks they would change the direction progressively from north towards the south. And during a few of their observations, something appeared in their records that they could not identify. At first, they thought it was some form of interference coming from nearby. At these frequencies they were using, you can get many different types of interference from things such as car ignition points and power lines. The first thing I noticed about this emission was that it appeared to occur at nearly the same time of night each night. After studying it over several more nights, and at first thinking it was a local farmer coming home from a visit to another farmer, it appeared to be occurring about four minutes earlier each night. This sounds like a familiar theme. This type of change with time is what they would expect from some celestial object, since stars rise four minutes earlier every night. So they knew it was very unlikely to be earthbound interference. And once they had several months of data, they could track more precisely how the timing of this interference changed. They found that it didn't quite move like the stars move. This would eliminate any star, nebula, or galaxy, since they all appear to move across the sky at a constant rate. Finally, they realized that an object that happened to be near the Crab Nebula at the time they began hearing this interference was Jupiter. Jupiter, like the Earth, orbits the Sun, and its orbital motion causes it to appear to move against the background of stars, as Dr. Ian Musgrave has been telling us. The rate at which Jupiter moved matched the change with the time of a strange interference they were picking up. So, in April 1955, at a meeting of the Astronomical Society of America, Burke and Franklin announced their discovery of radio emissions from Jupiter. So, in summary, the Americans, Dr. Kenneth Franklin, and Dr. Bernard Burke found in 1955 that Jupiter emits bursts of radio waves at a frequency of 22.2 megahertz. They also found a correlation with the position of the Great Red 
spot. And the Australian astrophysicist C.A. Shane showed there were also radio emissions coming from one of the white spots in the southern belt. The signals was found to be modulated by Io, the innermost Galilean satellite. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Nadezhda. I'll look forward to talking again next week. And now we cross over to Adelaide to talk to Dr Ian Musgrave from Astroblogger and find out what's up in the night sky this week. Good morning, Ian. How are you? Good morning, Brendan. I'm rather good this morning. Thank you very much. Now, I took your advice from last week and I went out. We had a very clear night on Friday night. So look at your Dance of the Planets and it was sensational. Friday night would have been really, really, really good. Unfortunately for us, we were clouded out. But last night, we managed to get the Moon and uh, Jupiter together. It was absolutely beautiful. Now, for the Northern Hemisphere listeners, you're not getting as quite a good as view as the Southern Hemisphere listeners. The alignment of Venus, Mercury, Jupiter and the Moon is almost vertical and it's really easy to see the bright planets and the Moon. For the Northern Hemisphere, this is angled more closely to the horizon, so you'll need a fairly clear level horizon. But as you know, Brendan, it hasn't finished yet. We've still got lots to see. And coming up in the week, We've got more planet dancing happening. Very good. My daughter went outside last night and looking overhead, it was great to see those planets right overhead as well. Yes, Mars and Saturn are putting on a little bit of a show at the moment. Well, we're focusing on Venus, Mercury and Jupiter at the moment because they've got the most movement happening and they're really quite bright. Mars and Saturn are, are quietly putting on their own show. If you've been looking up over the past few nights, you would have been noticing edging closer to a bright star. This is a Delta Scorpii or the Sugar. And as we're recording this in the next couple of nights, the Sugar will be quite close. And then Mars keeps on moving down the body of the scorpion and it's heading towards the bright red star Antares forms the main star of the body of the scorpion and Saturn and in a couple of weeks time it's going to move right between the two but at the moment coming up on Friday night you'll see the moon next to Antares and Saturn forming this sort of a kite shape so that's going to be quite look nice to look at it won't be as easy to photograph as the planet dance with the moon and the and Jupiter and, and Venus because uh, the moon would now be waxing and is would be quite bright. And so any photograph that brings out the details of the planets and Scorpio will vastly overexpose the moon. Photographically, it's not going to be so interesting, but certainly just watching. And if you keep on watching over the nights, now the moon is left behind our three bright planets in the twilight, moves up past the bright uh, star speaker, then up towards the head of the Scorpion, then uh, next to Mars and uh, Saturn, then moves on. So Mars and Saturn are putting on this nice little show in the Scorpion for us. But uh, down below in the horizon things are still happening you'll see venus is climbing closer towards jupiter as jupiter sinks towards the horizon and in the next couple of weeks we're going to have a rather spectacular meeting of those two but in the meantime little old mercury which uh, we tend to ignore a bit will be at its furthest elongation from the sun on the 17th and then by the 18th it will be closest to jupiter and once it gets really close that close to jupiter it's about 
if you stick your hand out, if you stick your arm out straight in front of you, your hand up like a stop sign. That's approximately six degrees of angular distance to the sky. Mercury will be about that distance from Jupiter. It will remain like that for some time now. So in the western twilight, you'll see all three planets, instead of now being strung out in a line like they are, I'll start making this nice right triangle. Fantastic, Ian. Now, just to clarify something for our listeners that are just beginning to go outside and look at the planets, during any one individual night, you're not going to really see the planets move other than that relative movement of the, with the rotation of the Earth. Yeah. They really, you really need to go out over several nights during a week or a few nights over a couple of weeks to really appreciate the movement of those planets. Yes, that's completely true with your qualification in a moment. But to see the planets move, you really have to be going out night after night or a couple of nights to see some decent movement. It depends on the planet, of course. Um, Saturn has been pretty much in the same place it's been for most of the year. It moves extremely slowly. Mars is now moving reasonably quickly compared to how it was moving previously because of the relative position of our orbits. Venus moves relatively quickly and moves Mercury boots along. On any given night, if you're just looking in the sky, of course, Venus and Mercury, to the unaided eye, don't look as if they're moving. But from night to night, their rate of movement is very, very obvious. Mars is, is less obvious when there's not much around. But at the moment, Mars is very close to the bright stars of the head of the Scorpion. It's relatively easy to see Mars moving from night to night. Jupiter moves much more slowly than Mars, Venus and Mercury. And when it's away from bright stars, it's really hard to get a handle on how much it moves every night. But now because it's heading towards the horizon and you've got three bright planets to pair to, you've got a, a bit of a better idea of how much it's moving. Now, I've said that the unaided eye, you can't see it moving, but when the bright planets Venus and Mercury are relatively high in the uh, nautical twilight and you've got a telescope, you can actually watch them move slowly in a telescope. You don't have very much time to do this because very soon they'll get below the horizon and you've got to have a clear horizon, but it is possible. It's going to be watching for a good hour or so to see any movement. And you see them moving against that background of stars. And you see them moving against that background of stars. Again, you'll need to watch for a long time to see a tiny little bit of movement, but you can, with a telescope, over a long enough period, see Venus and Mercury move against the background stars. Now, the other one is, uh, is, of course, the moon. We tend to forget the moon. And if you were out last night and were lucky enough to see the moon close to Jupiter, you can, over a period of several hours, watch the moon move against the background stars. And, in fact, it can be quite obvious. Indeed, when the, the, uh, one of the, the uh, pleasures of watching the moon, apart from uh, craters and uh, its general uh, overall beauty per se, is you can watch the moon move in front of bright stars and planets. And it can be quite dramatic. Of course, again, this takes place over periods of hours, but you can uh, see the moon move against the background bright stars and sometimes spectacularly move in front of the bright stars or the bright planet. I noticed that Phil Plate has said that they're expecting now 200 an hour with the Perseids. There's a few different predictions. The International Meteor Organisation prediction based on ESCO uh, Lytton's 
predictions suggest it'll be around about 150 to 160. Now, as you know, most meteor showers uh, represent dust trails from comets, and a couple represent dust trails from asteroids. But the Perseids represent dust trails from the comet 109P Swift-Tuttle, and this comes around every 130 years. But every time the comet comes around, it leaves behind a dust trail. And so when we see the meteor showers, we're impacting dust trails that have been produced by the comet several rotations ago. So what's special about this year is one of the one of the dust trails has been predicted to be moved by the gravitational influence of Jupiter, and so we'll it'll, it'll impact us more closely than it would otherwise. And because there's multiple streams that have been produced, we may impact more than one stream during a um, meteor shower. So there's a, a dust trail that's been released one rotation back which is expected to start impacting around about midnight on August 11 universal time, which will bring the rate up. So 200 per hour, I think, is enthusiastic. But certainly we're going to see a much better shower this year. I should also now clarify the, the concept of ZHR. ZHR means zenithal hourly rate. This is the number of meteors you would see per hour. Now, for most people in the world, the Perseid meteor shower is not directly overhead. In Australia, for example, anyone below the latitude of, of Brisbane have got no chance of seeing anything that looks like a meteor because the, the radiant never rises uh, above the horizon. Uh, in places like Darwin and Cairns, you'll have the, uh, the best show. The other thing is, of course, our friend, the atmosphere, or as our astronomers like to say, our enemy, the atmosphere, the closer you get to the horizon, the more horizon murk there is, the fewer meteors you'll see because they'll be too dim to see through the obscuring to the horizon. We might also need to remind people that the peak for the Perseids runs from 08 hours UT to 22 hours UT on the 12th of August. Okay, thank you very much. And I'll remind Australian listeners to convert universal time into Australian Eastern Standard Time, you simply add 10 hours. For Australians, the best time to look is around about between 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning of the 13th. Thank you very much, Ian. No worries. Thank you, Brendan. Very good. And we'll talk again next week. No worries. Catch you later. Bye. And here is the Astrophys news for the 10th of August 2016. In search of erupting black holes, help astronomers discover supermassive black holes observed in the Jansky Very Large Array and the Australian Telescope Compact Array. Black holes are found in the centre of most, if not all, galaxies. The bigger the galaxy, the bigger the black hole, and the more sensational the effect it can have on the host galaxy. These supermassive black holes drag in nearby material, growing to billions of times the mass of our sun, and occasionally producing spectacular jets of material travelling nearly as fast as the speed of light. These jets often can't be detected in visible light, but are seen using radio telescopes. Astronomers need your help to find these jets and match them to the galaxy that hosts them. You can begin hunting on behalf of a citizen science project by going to radiogalaxyzoo.org or just Google Radio Galaxy Zoo. It comes up as number one. Now remember Dave Hunter, the heliophysicist we had on a few weeks back? 
We have some additional information on aurora formation. Auroras display multiple colours that are really the signature of gases at different altitudes. Green signifies oxygen up to 240 kilometres in altitude, and red, oxygen above 240 kilometres. Blue is a signature of nitrogen up to 100 kilometres, and purple or violet of nitrogen above 100 kilometres. So when you're looking at an aurora now, you'll know what is the cause of those different colours. The Earth is in fact a giant magnetic bar with a positive end and a negative end. Today, the positive end is the South Pole, while the negative end is the North Pole. The Earth's magnetic field on average switches a few times every million years. If you waited long enough, your compass would flip directions. The magnetism is generated deep within the core of a planet, as Dave explained. The Earth's core is divided into two main parts, the inner nickel-iron core and the liquid outer core. It's the movement of these two parts of a core that generate an electric field, and as Faraday demonstrated the connection between electricity and magnetism, the magnetism erupts from each of the poles and loops out, touching back down at the opposite pole. This creates a bubble known as the magnetosphere that surrounds Earth and acts as a shield against solar radiation. The magnetosphere is not a perfect sphere as it is subjected to a massive pushing force by solar winds. This forces the sphere into more of a teardrop shape, with the side facing the sun extending only 65,000 kilometres, with a magnetotail believed to be 6 million kilometres extending beyond the orbit of the moon. So, what causes the auroras to occur? Now that we know that the Earth has a magnetic field, we can see what happens to it when the sun turns violent. The sun is a very temperamental body, shooting out huge masses of charged material, often towards Earth, known as coronal mass ejections. This is called a CME. These ejections contain deadly radiation that would kill off most life and turn what remains into a mutated mess. When these immense waves of radiation and charged particles are aimed at Earth, they hit and peel back the outer layers of the magnetosphere, exposing the lower layers. You would think that this would spell certain doom. If the CME can breach the magnetosphere, it surely can reach us. Fortunately, Earth has a secondary defence system where it uses its magnetic field lines which form part of the magnetic field to direct the streams of particles towards the poles. How does this dissipate the energy coming in? Well, when the charged mass enters the upper atmosphere, it collides with oxygen and nitrogen atoms. These collisions impart the deadly energy into those atoms, exciting them and making them glow. This is why auroras are so bright and allow the atmosphere to dissipate the remaining radiation before it can reach us at altitudes reaching from 100 to 400 kilometres up. How do we know that the magnetic field is so important? We can see what happens when it isn't there by looking at our planetary neighbour Mars. Billions of years ago, Mars lost its magnetic field, leading to the solar winds stripping its atmosphere and any water on the surface boiling off. Today it has a very thin atmosphere and a barren and dry surface. Earth is not the only place in the solar system where you can catch these light shows. We see the same thing happening on an even bigger scale on Jupiter and Saturn, with bands of light even larger than Earth itself. Both of these planets have powerful magnetic fields extending in the case of Jupiter 
to a size so large it would appear as being five times larger than a full moon in our sky. So if you're lucky enough to catch an aurora as it streaks across the sky, spare a moment to think about how close you are to potentially deadly forces. The Earth's magnetosphere is our protector and shield. Without it, no auroras, no life, nothing. That story from Jake Port from Cosmos magazine, 3rd of August. Jake is a great science writer. That's Astrophys for this week. See you next week. Radio Wave!